Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage all the way to the we-just-hit-a-million-orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash specialoffer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash specialoffer. Hello, I'm Julia Chatterley. Welcome to our coverage of the first anniversary of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. It's difficult to describe the loss suffered over the last 12 months, the human toll we're unable to verify. But estimates suggest hundreds of thousands of people have lost their lives on both sides. The United Nations says over 8 million refugees have fled the country with very few returning. And among those remaining, the World Bank sees 60% now live on the poverty line. And worldwide, there's been disruption to food supplies, energy security, and punishing levels of inflation, including in nations least able to bear it. This is the cost of Russia's war. This hour, we'll cover the virtual G7 meeting underway at this moment, where Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky will speak. We're also live in Kharkiv, which has suffered heavy shelling this week, disabling heating supplies. And we'll unpack China's 12-point proposal to de-escalate the conflict, which has been met with scepticism across the West. And earlier today, President Zelensky sent a rallying call to his troops, saying the future lies in their hands. It is you who will decide whether we are all going to exist, whether Ukraine is going to exist. Every day, every hour, it is you, Ukrainian soldiers, which will decide it. Very young soldiers you saw there. Senior international correspondent Sam Kiley joins us now from Kharkiv. Sam, good to have you with us. This time last year, I think there were fears that Kyiv would fall within days, that Russia would swiftly dominate. And yet, one year on, Ukraine's still fighting and the G7, for the most part, standing together. Yeah, it's been an extraordinary journey for, above all, for the Ukrainians. It's been a fairly slow intellectual journey from the Ukrainian perspective uh, in the West in terms of the provision of lethal aid to allow them to prosecute the war to defeat the Russian invaders. But if we go back to, and I was standing here a year ago, uh, just as the Russians were assaulting, we're only 25 miles from the Russian border. The Russians got very close into town. They were shelling the city. There were deafening explosions all over the city. Civilians were starting to die. And then there was this sudden turnaround when Effectively, the the Ukrainian army in tiny numbers of Ukrainian special forces and uh, reconnaissance soldiers with experience from 2014, armed with NLAWS anti-tank weapons and javelins, were able to stop quite literally in their tracks invading forces over the next few weeks here in uh, Kharkiv, but also in the capital Kiev. Further uh, over in this province, though they were unable to stop an onslaught, that took a lot longer to turn around. And now, of course, we've got this very vicious 
a grinding war that's going on, particularly in the east of the country, with very high casualties indeed uh, on both sides, Julia. And, and as you say, the war continues. I believe this is month eight out of 12 for you personally reporting on this story too. Um, the situation remains bleak for those fighting. It's also bleak for those fighting to save lives, Sam. It is. It is a very, very grim process, this war. It is a Second World War type war, a massive slugfest involving artillery, uh, aircraft, helicopter gunships, uh, rocket, multiple rocket launching systems. And sometimes in all of the descriptions of this, the human cost gets forgotten. This is what it looks like at the sharp end. Almost walking, this wounded Ukrainian soldier has an obvious injury. Arriving at a casualty evacuation point for the Battle of Bakhmut, American medics look for hidden trauma. Tell him I'm going to roll him and I'm going to check his back. One, two, three. And Julius, when you get a chance, give his legs a feel for me. Yeah. Can we get him back? Mm. I have a shrapnel wound out here as well. It looks minor. You want to go ahead and draw some on dance for me? Chris is from Houston, Texas. He's three kilometers, less than two miles, from Russian troops. Take his blood pressure for me. And he's only 22. Last year, he took time out from his job to volunteer for Road to Relief. The charity relies on donations to fund and equip frontline ambulances, and these teams are unpaid. There's uh, credit cards in my, in my mom and a, a little bit of prior savings. So as long as you have enough money to, to scrape by and just buy like the basic goods, um, things tend to be okay. Hospital and medical staff are regularly targeted by Russia. This location is hidden in trees near Ukrainian artillery that's firing overhead on Russians just up the road. So it's just, uh, yeah, we, we need more more medics, more trucks. It's just that the amount of injured is, is uh, super high. Does he have any allergies? Chris is saying privately that one of the reasons there is such a need for foreign volunteers to work as medics is that so many of the Ukrainians have been killed. The team relies on a former software designer for translation. Is there anything about this that, that you can't handle? All those deaths, I, of course, they are incredibly hard. I don't know how to take. Somehow I, you feel guilty about that. It's a 20-minute run for the ambulance to a field hospital. Would you push this slowly for me, please? Yeah, a mine roughly, like, what was it, 20 minutes ago, 30 minutes ago now? Yeah, a mine 30 minutes ago. Adam, careful, please. He's delivered to another secret clinic. Here, the wounded pour in. A soldier's lost a leg. In his abandoned uniform, the piece of shrapnel that took it. Medics here say it's relatively quiet. Some days there are hundreds of patients. He doesn't remember losing if he lost consciousness or not. But pupils were equal and reactive, uh, norm, same size. Blood-soaked stretchers dry in the sun outside. And sunset can be busy for medics. Soldiers trapped by fighting can be rescued as the light fades. Back at the evacuation point, no wounded. Five dead soldiers lie in body bags. They're so fresh from the battlefield, they're unknown. Their IDs are checked and they're photographed. Their suffering is over.
Their families don't yet know that theirs is about to begin. Now, Julia, the, as I say, the numbers of people killed on both sides are unknowable, really. Um, neither side would uh, give any kind of accurate estimation. But I think there is a great deal of pressure inside Ukraine and being maintained by Ukraine on her allies to accelerate the delivery of these strategic weapons that they say that they need because they want to be able to try and win this war this year. They know that they can't really win a war of attrition. Julia? It's a breathtaking tragedy and also breathtaking uh, heroism and bravery there. Thank you for reporting on that and thank you for being there. Sam Kali there, senior international correspondent in Kharkiv. Okay, more from the front lines now. Senior national security correspondent Alex Marquardt has this report on the foreign troops fighting in Vuladar. And they tell him why they're risking their lives so far from home. On the road as the sun comes up, with American fighter Jason Mann at the wheel, driving into the devastated frontline town of Vulidar. Traveling in and out through a muddy field means being exposed, a direct line of sight from Russian artillery and tanks. This is not an early morning war, really, I think. First light means hopefully avoiding the endless Russian shelling raining down, including terrifying thermobaric missiles everyone aware that a shell could land at any moment. Even as Russian forces struggle to take any real ground here, they're inflicting a massive amount of damage on this town, which is largely made up of these Soviet-era apartment blocks. You can see this one blackened by the fighting over here, a massive crater from a Russian missile. Ukrainian forces do have the higher ground here. They are able to use these buildings to defend this town, but it is getting absolutely pummeled. Only a handful of hardy civilians left, their home now eerie, apocalyptic ruins. There's a reason I don't like being on this side. For months, man and his unit of foreign troops, called the Phalanx Group, have fought alongside Ukraine's 72nd Brigade, keeping the Russians at bay. This is redefining the global order as we speak. This is democracy versus autocracy. Do we want to let autocracy control more people's lives in the future or prevent it from doing that ever again, strictly? And that's what's in your head when you head out there? Absolutely. That's the only reason I'm here. Waves of Russian forces advance in open fields. They've had enormous losses, but they keep coming and keep bombing. This strategic corner of Ukraine is where the southern and eastern fronts meet, making it a major priority for Russia's push deeper into Donbass. Mann arrived in Ukraine at the very beginning of the war. He's a former U.S. Marine who served in Iraq and Afghanistan, who went on to Columbia University and worked at Google as a software engineer. In the village house where the unit lives, a few miles from the front, Mann tells us he's now here for as long as it takes. Ukrainians are very committed to having their country back. Uh, that is, that is, and that includes Crimea to most of them. As long as morale's high, I'm, I'm happy. And it is, he says, as the war enters its second year. New recruits have also just arrived from Canada and the UK. The fight's so urgent that team leader Turtle from New Zealand only has a couple days to get them ready. There is such a lot of emotion within these fights. Uh, 
Mainly because in, from a lot of what I've seen is they don't want to be there either. You know, I never thought that I'd ever experience, you know, war in this sort of way, in this sort of capacity. Because we're just fighting war and, I don't know, like, it's like fighting in a time warp. Turtle has to head to a funeral for a Ukrainian teammate just killed by Russian mortar fire. There are so many losses and such little time to grieve. Sort of um, harder for us guys from the foreign militaries because, well, you know, ever since like Iraq and Afghanistan, we weren't losing dudes like so fast all the time. It's always good to be able to remember your friends, but it's just hard sometimes when the next day you've got to go out and do something, sometimes even that same day. So. Both turtle and man are very matter-of-fact that they could lose their lives fighting for a country that isn't theirs. One year into this war, neither is second-guessing himself. And not everyone gets that choice. For me, it was more of a serendipitous, like, one of those moments in your life that you don't really have a choice, actually. No regrets. No regrets. Yeah. And one year of tragic conflict in Ukraine has also resulted in a life-changing year for many Russians, too. Fred Plankin joins us now from Moscow. Fred, Russia framed this invasion in the beginning as an attempt to liberate Ukrainians. But we saw President Putin this week acknowledging, commemorating the Russian lives lost. Has public opinion evolved, changed in, in any way over the past year? Well, I think, if, if anything, public opinion here in Russia is probably more behind Vladimir Putin uh, than it was at the beginning of what the Russians call their special military operation. It was quite interesting because we were speaking to uh, the top sort of independent pollster here in Russia. And, of course, all that always needs to be taken with a grain of salt. However, Vladimir Putin's popularity ratings here in this country, his approval ratings, are around 80 percent at this point in time. And even as far as the war in Ukraine is concerned, most people even though it might be lukewarm support, at least they do seem to still buy into the reasons why Vladimir Putin led them into that battle. It was quite interesting because this past week, of course, Vladimir Putin pretty much went from one event to the next, laying out the reasons why he did all this and why he felt that he didn't have any other choice, saying that he believes that these were Russian lands that were under attack by the Ukrainians, uh, believing that uh, or, or saying that he believes that the U.S. was infringing on Ukraine was sort of trying to drive Russia out of that part of the world and, and, and trying to push Russia back. And those are things that do seem to resonate with a lot of people here in this country. Now, of course, they do acknowledge that things go are going very difficult. And, you know, we've been covering this war for the past year. And I remember standing on the border between Russia and Ukraine on the Russian side as it was starting and seeing Russian armored vehicles rolled past, seeing the Russians shoot into Ukrainian territory. And they seemed like an army that believed it would be over very quickly, that they would win very quickly. They were waving at our cameras. But you could see in the course of the next days that followed that uh, there was something different set in. They were starting to put their sort of flak vests, their bulletproof vests into the doors of their cars because they were getting so much counterfire. So I think there has been somewhat of a rude awakening for the Russian military as all this has been going on. And I think one of the things, Julia, that we've seen over the past couple of days as Vladimir Putin has been laying everything out he has said that this will continue. He has said that he will bring new weapons to the Russian forces fighting on the front lines. But he really hasn't said how he thinks that things can move forward and how Russia can actually prevail on the battlefield because it has been a very long time since there has been a major Russian victory on the battlefield. And even now, as so many people are speaking about a possible Russian offensive taking shape in the east of Ukraine and fighting intensifying there, there's been very little in the way of ground gained on the part of the Russian forces. So they clearly have some logistical issues. They clearly have some issues of, of actually constituting that military that would do that. And we have heard very little from Vladimir Putin over 
over the past days of what the sort of medium term future will bring, except for the fact that he says that Russia will go on and he believes they will prevail in the end, Julia. Yeah, and that's the, the biggest fear, I think, at this moment, is that there simply is no end in sight. Fred Plankin, thank you so much for mm. that. And we're going to discuss this after the break. Stay with CNN. More to come. Welcome back to First Move. Landmarks across the West alight with colours of the Ukrainian flag to mark the first anniversary of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. In Paris, the blue and yellow Eiffel Tower shone across the city as the mayor tweeted, glory to Ukraine. In Brussels, the European Parliament building, you can see there splashed in the colours of Ukraine's flag. And in London, demonstrators painted blue and yellow on the road outside the Russian embassy, while thousands of people turned out for a vigil in Trafalgar Square. And just take a look at the Empire State Building here in New York. I don't think there's any missing that message. A powerful show of solidarity, but one year on, still no clear path to peace. China has just released its 12-point proposal for de-escalating the conflict, including point one, respecting the sovereignty of all countries, and also includes resuming peace talks, keeping nuclear power plants safe, and stopping unilateral sanctions. Just take a listen to some of what U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken had to say. There are 12 points in the Chinese plan. If they were serious about the first one, sovereignty, then uh, this war could end tomorrow. Uh, of course, Vladimir Putin's flagrant disregard for Ukraine's sovereignty is what's at the heart of this. The war could end tomorrow if he simply pulled his troops out. Appointed response. Joining us now, Ian Bremmer, president and founder of G Zero Media and Eurasia Group. He's also the author of The Power of Crisis, How Three Threats and Our Response Will Change the World. Ian, always great to have you on the show. We'll get to uh, point, one, point one to point 12 on uh, China's plan there. But I want to talk first and foremost, one year uh, of war in Europe. I don't think anybody felt that we would be in this situation one year on in the first days of that war. Your observations today? Uh, big stories uh, one year on are that uh, you have the end of the peace dividend in Europe that's permanent. Uh, and that means that Russia uh, has been decoupled economically uh, from the EU. There are very significant long-standing energy costs uh, that they're going to hit as a consequence. Millions of refugees they have to deal with. They're ramping up uh, their defense expenditure dramatically. And, of course, they're increasingly in an asymmetric war directly with Russia itself. Russia, on the other hand, increasingly treated like a rogue state, uh, not a part of the international community, virtually no engagement from the United States, from its allies. As a consequence, no possibility near term of negotiations with the West or directly with the Ukrainians. And of course, caught in the middle, the Ukrainians with an economy that has now collapsed some 40 percent contraction over the last year uh, and the Russians continuing to fight and fight and fight. Uh, the Ukrainians taking that in the teeth. You know, it's something that we've heard from Biden and numerous leaders of allied nations this week is this concept of being behind Ukraine for as long as it takes. But just listening to what you were saying there and the comparison you're making between the situation that Ukraine faces versus Russia, uh, far more dramatic economic collapse, it seems, in the case of Ukraine, smaller population, exhaustion over what we've seen over the last year? I mean, being behind them as long as it takes, on the face of it, Ukraine has less time than Russia. I think that's right, Julia. And I mean, certainly in the last 12 months, uh, you have to give the Biden administration very high marks uh, 
for leadership of the coalition and support of Ukraine. Uh, this has gone about as well as one could have expected, given expectations in the first weeks of the war, when you know pretty much all of the NATO leaders, all of the military analysts were expecting that Zelensky was gone, the Russians were going to mop up in a matter of days, if not weeks. We're in a very, very different position from that, and thankfully so. But it's hard to look at the coming year and imagine that this will go as well for the West as it has in the last year. We are starting to see significant diminishment of support, particularly from Republicans in the United States, some independents as well, and willingness to provide another $100 billion, for example, to Ukraine every year going forward. The Europeans are starting to wonder about where the Americans will be. And of course, they don't want this to go on forever either. Uh, and the Chinese are starting to intervene directly, potentially tipping their thumb on the scale in favor of their strategic partner, the Russians. All of that is going to be much harder for the West to deal with. And Julia, the big problem is, I mean, you can imagine if we just froze the conflict right here, literally froze everything. So the Ukrainians lose 17% of their land, but they've got massive military support from the West. They're being economic, they're being integrated into the European Union. NATO is expanding. They'll get hundreds of billions of dollars to start to reconstruct their country. I mean, that that is not acceptable from the Ukrainian position because they will have lost this territory. But if you look at all of the potential scenarios for the coming three, five, ten years, um, frankly, that's probably one of the better ones that you can consider. And and that's a serious problem for everybody involved, except for Putin, who increasingly truly believes that, as you say, time is on his side. How long does it take and what does it take for that 17 percent loss to become politically, emotionally acceptable, Ian, whether it's for the, for the Ukrainians uh, or anyone Julia, else? Julia, you know, back in the early fall, uh, the White House was basically saying publicly that they're going to put pedal to the metal, do everything they can to support the Ukrainians through the fall, and then we'll see where they are, and then maybe you can start a negotiations process. Well, they've done that. The Ukrainians picked up a little bit of territory, uh, but it's basically a stalemate. And the White House now is basically saying exactly the same thing, but just pushing the time frame forward into the spring. So you have expectations for a new counteroffensive from Ukraine, probably in April or May, especially depending on when ammunition to sufficient quantities comes into their hands from the Americans, from allies. And you see if they can take more of their territory. And then once again, you see if you're in a position where you might be willing to start negotiations, started first and foremost by the Ukrainians themselves. But the question is, of course, can you maintain the same level of cohesion and support from NATO, from the West? Are the Chinese going to stay on the sidelines or do they start actively supporting the Russians? What does that mean? How are the Ukrainians doing through all of this? Can they continue to fight with the same level of engagement? The Ukrainian leaders just last week in Munich, when I was seeing them at the security conference, they didn't like the Biden formulation of as long as it takes. Their view is we need as much support as humanly possible now because we can't be fighting this war on our territory for three years, for five years, for 10 years. It, a permanent war on the ground in Ukraine is clearly not a strategy for Ukrainian success. What about the Chinese? You've mentioned them a few times now. We've had this 12-point um, plan for, for de-escalation. There's opportunity here for China, surely, in helping to resolve this conflict. And they'll always be looking for perhaps what they can extract 
from putting pressure on. We've also got the foreign ministry overnight saying it's disinformation, the campaign that suggests that they're in some way getting closer to providing weaponry to Russia at this moment. And they've pushed back quite harshly on that. Where does China stand at this moment in your mind, Ian? Uh, I, I think that the threat of providing direct weapons is more than perhaps the reality at this point. That The Chinese do know that the Europeans will strongly align with the Americans in tarring the Chinese with the same brush that the Russians have been tarred with if they start providing significant direct military support to Putin. So, I mean, if you want to keep the Europeans on side, if you want to charm offensive for economic integration and more business to be done with the Europeans, that would be the wrong way at it. So I, I'd be surprised to see that. But I do think the Chinese see an opportunity. They see that the Americans are starting to divide a little bit, starting to weaken a bit on Ukraine. They see that the Europeans uh, want to get back to normalcy if they can. And they're saying, well, no one's talking about peace. We'll talk about peace. And let's have the Ukrainians and the West portrayed as the obstreperous ones, as the ones that want to continue a forever war. At the very least, if you're China, you believe that you can get most of the developing world on your side by taking that position. And maybe, just maybe, you can get some of the Europeans as well. So I think a lot of what Xi Jinping is doing today is performative. I don't mm -hmm. think it's expected to be a meaningful peace plan. But I also think that over the coming months, we're going to see a Xi Jinping visit to Moscow directly to meet with President Putin. No way he would have done that three, six, nine months ago. I think that's a big deal. I think the West isn't going to like it. And geopolitically, we do see that there is a bit more willingness of Xi Jinping to step up to that statement he made back in February 4th about global friends without limits. Hmm. I have about 30 seconds very quickly, and I fear I know the answer to this question before I ask. Are you and I having the same conversation about another anniversary in one year's time? No, no, I don't think we are, Julia. We're going to talk less about, uh, about Ukraine, and we're going to talk a lot more about Russia and its increasingly destructive role more broadly in the West and in the world. I, I, I wish that weren't the case, but the aperture is widening on this war. Uh, it's mm. not staying the same. Ian, always great to get your context and uh, insight. Ian Bremmer, president and founder Thank of G Zero Media and Eurasia Group. Thank you. So to come here on First Move, the Poroshenko plan. The former Ukrainian president says there are seven steps to help win the war in Ukraine. He joins us next. Welcome back to First Move and to signs of solidarity from around the world marking one year since the Russian invasion of Ukraine. As we speak, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky is meeting virtually with leaders from the G7 nations. Pictures here too from Paris, where the French President Emmanuel Macron is also attending that meeting. And British Prime Minister Rishi Sunak led a one-minute silence outside Number 10 Downing Street earlier. He was also joined by the Ukrainian ambassador to the United Kingdom, as well as members of the Ukrainian Armed Forces. And landmarks, as we discussed, from New York to Paris, all illuminated with blue and gold to mark this solemn anniversary. And meanwhile, the battle continues playing out along the eastern front lines. Russia's private military company, the Wagner Group, are now claiming control of a village near the embattled city of Bakhmut, an area where some of the fierce fighting has taken place. Meanwhile, the first consignment of Leopard 2 tanks from Poland has arrived in Ukraine. The Polish Prime Minister was on hand in Kyiv to see them handed over. Poland has said it will deliver 14 Leopard 2 tanks in total over the next two or three weeks. 
And my next guest says more needs to be done to help defeat Russian President Vladimir Putin. Former Ukrainian President Petro Poroshenko has laid out what he calls the Poroshenko Plan. Seven steps he believes the world needs to take to cripple President Putin and the Russian economy. The plan includes setting a lower price cap for Russian oil, blocking the entry of Russian sanctioned export goods into the Suez Canal and issuing sanctions against Russia's state nuclear power company. And he joins us now from near the front line of the war, former Ukrainian President Petro Poroshenko. Sir, it's good to have you on the show. Thank you so much for joining us. I do want to talk about your plan, but I know you're on the front lines with the Ukrainian forces. I just want to ask how they're doing and how they're holding up. I think Ukrainian armed forces, which was created in the year 2014 with great interoperability with NATO, based on the NATO standards, surprised the world. Today I'm in the Donetsk region with the brigade, Paratroopers Brigade number 81 from Spirne, from Krimina Brigade 25 Paratroopers, and the Tim Brigade Edelweiss, and I'm proud to have these uh, soldiers who save the world, because the world was saved because of the resilience of Ukrainian people, because of the courage of Ukrainian soldiers, and because of the great solidarity of the whole world, the leadership of the United States. Our partners in this situation, when we have a tense year of the Russian war and exactly one year from the Russian invasion. We come today to the front line, we bring uh, the artillery tractor, we bring everything we can to make the uh, victory close. And definitely for the victory we need five things. Weapons, sanction, justice for Putin, financial support for Ukraine to survive, and full membership in NATO and the EU. And you are absolutely right. I propose seven-step plan for sanction. And what is the purpose of this plan? We should cut the Russian export to stop Putin's ability to finance the war from 600 billion to 300 billion. And for that, we are proposed several steps, including new sanction on Novotech and Russian liquid natural gas, stop position from Yamal to supply because this is given more than 60 billion dollar the closing of the Suez channel this is also 60 billion dollar uh, Russian losses in export the stop supplying from the oil pipeline Druzhba through the Ukrainian territory and all the detailized plans we should push Putin to sit on the table of negotiation after uh, withdrawing all the foreign troops from the Ukrainian soil, respecting Ukrainian territorial integrity. You know, the one thing that stood out to me, and a lot of these points are about tightening sanctions that already exist, is stripping Russia of its uranium enrichment services. And I just wonder why we haven't seen sanctions on the nuclear energy sector in Russia. And I worry that it's because other European nations rely on these for nuclear energy. Petro, this is something that could be tightened and hasn't been. That situation, uh, I have a great experience in work with the European Union, with all the member states. And with the, again, with the leadership of the United States, we can reach 
all the necessary things, I have no doubt, and I know that Europe now start to understand and have three points to understand during this year. Point number one, Europe stop trust Putin. Point number two, Europe stop afraid Putin. And point number three, Europe learn how to keep together. And with this situation, despite of the fact that Putin count on some member states to block the uh, next sanction, I am an optimist and I am absolutely confident that we will have a nuclear sanction against Russia. And But most important thing, we should again cut the finance for Putin. This is definitely can undermine the Russia from inside and that would help us to deputinize Russia, help us to deputinize Europe and help us to deputinize the world, providing the sustainable global security. Petro, you know Vladimir Putin, you've interacted with him, you've negotiated with him in the past. I want to ask you about China's proposal and whether you believe that President Xi Jinping can and will influence President Putin to stop this war? First of all, it definitely took note on the Chinese decision to come up with the political position. And this is the great evidence that this is not just a local, regional war. This is the global tragedy which uh, not uh, avoid any nation in the world. Bad news from the outside that China call it as a Ukrainian-Russian crisis. This is not a crisis. This is the biggest war on the in the world after the World War II. Definitely biggest war on the European continent. And we should pay uh, serious attention to this question. And uh, we in Ukraine definitely understand what necessary to do. And we think that uh, Chinese role can be crucial. They said that the key from the peace is not in Kiev, is not in Brussels, and even not in Washington. The key from the peace is in Moscow. But when the whole world would be the same united as uh, today on the, or yesterday on the General Assembly of United Nations, where 141 nations stay together and Russia can count only on North Korea, uh, Syria or Belarus. With that situation, definitely I am quite optimistic. I want to see the positive role of China. I think that the, with this situation we uh, count that Chinese will not just call for the ceasefire. We uh, just not uh, hate the idea to stop supplying Ukraine the weapons because with that situation, if Ukraine stop mm. shooting, would be no Ukraine. But for our Chinese friend, if Russia stop shooting, it would be peace. I have an experience for cooperation, not for cooperation with China and negotiation only with Putin, but also with the President Xi. And I think now is the right time. And let me use uh, this uh, broadcast in this interview, uh, use this opportunity to say that would be absolutely good idea for President Xi to come to Kiev. 
to visit Bucha, to visit the Irpeg, to see what was the military crimes and how important is the Chinese role in this process, to have a <clears throat> direct negotiation with the Ukrainian authority. And I think this is the right time and the right place to start this negotiation. Please follow the example of the President Biden. That would we be pray for peace. Petro Poroshenko, former president of Ukraine. Sir, stay safe and thank you for your time today. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, after the break, caught up in the conflict, the Ukrainian teacher who fled to Poland with her young son goes back for an emotional reunion. That's next. Welcome back to First Move. As we mark one year since the start of the war in Ukraine, it also feels important to look beyond the talk of geopolitics and, and weaponry and remind ourselves of the personal stories of innocent Ukrainians, those that are dealing with conflict, but also working to build a better future. We've kept in touch with the school teacher, Dario Kristenko, who fled Kyiv with her 10-year-old son. They risked their lives to escape, with the pair traveling through four different countries before finally reaching Poland. And now she teaches Ukrainian refugees Polish as part of an emergency employment program called Cash for Work, sponsored by CARE and the Polish Center for International Aid. And earlier this month, Daria returned for an emotional reunion with her grandmother who wouldn't leave her home. Daria also visited the ruins of Bucha and Irpin, coming face to face with some of the devastation caused to her home country. And she's now back in Poland and joins us now. Daria, it's great to have you on the show. It's great to see you looking so well. But I, I do want to start with simply what it felt like to hug your father and your grandmother after all that time. Yes, you, you started with the most emotional, frankly speaking, moment of the whole trip back to Ukraine because I remember it, uh, it was, I was waiting for it. I was ex excited about coming back home but the most importantly to be seeing and meeting and hugging my closest, my father and my grandma. I haven't seen them for a year and it was such a great moment to just be joining with them, seeing them and having just, you know, small talks, uh, being together. And it was also a bit sad because I knew that it's just for a few hours and the fact that Part of my family is in Ukraine and the other part, my mom and my son, are in Poland. And the fact that uh, it, is still, it is still unsafe to return home and this is the feeling of bittersweet at the same time. Mm. I remember vividly you telling us about your father and you know, he's not young, but he decided to fight. He felt that it was his responsibility to to defend Ukraine. How's he doing too? Yes, it was his decision to stay and uh, he joined territorial defense of the town and he is, he is very busy now and I'm very proud of him. Because yes, you're right, he is, he is not young and he, he could have gone with us last year, but he decided to stay because he, he felt that this is what he should be doing. And I remember when, we were, when I met him just recently and we were talking and he said that I want to stay because I want 
my family, my daughter, my grandson to return home, safe, independent country. And this is why he is there and he he's he's standing and staying in Ukraine despite all the dangers and all the threats that are obviously there. Yeah, and you, your mother and your son in Poland, you're teaching. I remember you, you found a job very quickly because you're a, you're a teacher and you're teaching Polish to Ukrainian refugees there as well so that they can integrate in life. How's your son doing? And how often does he talk about going home? Because I remember that was one of the things, as much as he was having some fun and, and learning new things in Poland, he, he kept talking to you about going home. Yes, I am. Uh, I started uh, uh, as a teacher. I joined this uh, care-sponsored program, but later on, I uh, joined care as a communications officer, and I'm happy to be working now uh, with uh, Ukrainian refugees and giving this assistance and just meeting a lot of amazing people who were affected by this conflict, but who are also very strong to be building new life in new country and I'm happy to be at least somehow part of this assistance to of this help to my people, the Ukrainian people. And if uh, my son Max, yes, he is he's doing better and better. He is now in fifth grade of a Polish class. He he speaks Polish fluently finally and wow. of course he <laughs> thinks about going back home every day. He still keeps in touch with his Ukrainian friends who are unfortunately now are in England and in States and in many other countries, but some are also in Ukraine. So he is just happy to to be to be he understands how important it is now to be in Poland, how unsafe it is to be in Ukraine, but the dreams are to return, of course, home. And uh, he, he cannot imagine his future being away. So our all, my dream and all of Ukrainians' dreams are to return to independent, safe and, you know, country that stands. Daria, I'm, I'm blown away by your strength. You're clearly a super mom. And... Um, the fact that he's learned Polish in the space of what one year is fluently is just um, incredible. I, I guess I'm proud of you for everything you've achieved this year. Um, very quickly, I want to ask you if you had the opportunity to speak to Vladimir Putin at this moment, what would you say to him? Okay, this is a difficult question. To be honest, I wouldn't like to have this opportunity. I would rather speak to people who, uh, to those who have supported and who are still supporting Ukrainian people. And if if I may just uh, talk about how thankful I am and how thankful we are, we Ukrainians are for all the support that have been given to us and how important it has been and how important it is still now for all the support that's for refugees in foreign countries and for international internal displaced people in Ukraine. And this is, this is important to be talking to people who are, who really care and who really help 
and not to those who put you in position of leaving your flat, leaving your country in 20 minutes. So, Daria. yes, thank you. Thank you for supporting. Thank you for donating to CARE and to other organizations who support Ukrainian refugees all over the world. Um, Daria, I think that's um, about as powerful as that message could be. Um, thank you for your time. Our hearts with you and love to the family. Thank you. Welcome back to our continuing coverage of the first anniversary of the full-scale war in Ukraine. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky is expected to speak at any moment. Earlier today, he spoke to troops, saying the future of the country lies in their hands. He also met virtually with members of the G7 nations. And Nick Robertson joins us now. Nick, I think uh, Vladimir Zelensky likely to say once again, and we've heard it already this week, that the war is likely to end this year. The question is, does it and how? If it does, it'll be around a, it'll be around a negotiating table. Everyone does agree with that. That's how wars typically end. But to get to that negotiating table, uh, I think a year is a really short space of time. It's, it's not impossible, um, and perhaps towards the end of the year. But what seems to be the position we're in at the moment is both Russia and Ukraine are very fixed in their positions. They're not saying they're against peace talks, but they're saying that the, the talk should be on their terms. Certainly that's Ukraine's view, and certainly uh, President Vladimir Putin in his speeches this week have said that the war's going well, it's going to schedule, uh, they're on track to do what they, to do what they set out to do. Um, so it really means that what is going to happen is that there's going to be continued military conflict on the battlefield. Russia at the beginning of last year, a year ago, looked like it could uh, sweep through Ukraine quickly. It didn't. It had the better army. It had more troops. And Ukraine's fought it to a standstill. In the meantime, Ukraine has got more troops. It has got a better army. Um, it's got more sophisticated equipment. It's got a very organized uh, Western alliance behind it. It has sophisticated equipment, the top-range tanks, a lot of uh, armored fighting vehicles coming under its control very soon. All of that's going to give it the opportunity to change the game. Uh, and this is what the hope is of, of uh, Ukraine's backers, that they can change the game on the battlefield, shape the battlefield. Those are the words of uh, the US Secretary of Defense, Lloyd Austin, that they can begin to shape the dynamic with this enabled force. But the reality is, to shape the battlefield, they're going to have to double down at the war, and Russia will respond uh, in, in a like fashion. Mm. I mean, the conversation we were having this time a year ago was, was that it was all going to be over very quickly and, and Kiev would fall. So a very different conversation here today. Um, but nonetheless, a painful year too. Nick, thank you for that. Nick Robertson there. And we're going to hear from President Zelensky momentarily and we will bring that to you when he does. For now, that's it for the show. Stay with CNN for continuing coverage of the anniversary of the war in Ukraine. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. 
Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.